One thing I wanted to do, good morning by the way, um, again I realize I'm a new face still up here, so uh, if I haven't met you, my name's Nick Weber, uh, I'm the new lead pastor here, this is just my, I guess maybe second, third week on the job, so uh, hopefully things are going okay thus far. If I could, I would love to honor the fathers in this room. Um, if you are a dad, could you stand up and, and maybe the people next to you, we could, we could lay hands on the fathers and... If you wouldn't mind joining with me in prayer for them, that would be great. And I would like to give them another round of applause. I, and this isn't just because I'm a father, I promise you. I would do the same thing for Mother's Day. But it is a special day. So if you guys uh, are uh, standing near one of the dads here among us, uh, let's lay hands on them. And let's, let's pray. May I could do this too. Lord, we... Um, we know it's a really high calling. Uh, it's, it's a position, a title that's even um, likened to your own. We call you Father, and we image in our own relationship with our kids your fatherhood. We are called to be fathers in your image and likeness. And I pray, Jesus, for these men and the high calling that you have given to them. I pray, Lord, that before anything else, they would know themselves as your child. They would know you as their Abba, Father. And they would know your care and concern and your love. So that when they are called to love and serve and lay themselves down for their own kids, they have the fuel, the, the power to do it. We pray, Lord, that you would guard them as the head of the household, that they would not be given over to um, the ways of this world and the, the picture that we get of masculinity in our culture, that they kind of go to work and they come home and sit on the couch and they've done their job, and now it's mom's turn. And we pray, God, that these men would be servants in their home. They'd be the, the leaders, but they'd be the greatest servants. They would go to work and labor, and they would come home and serve and labor for their kids and for their wives. Would you be with them, Lord? And, and we pray a special blessing upon them in your name this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, dads, for all that you do. I had no idea how much parents do until I became a parent. So if you are a kid, uh, yeah, honor your honor your, your mommy and your daddy. Um, okay, I want to read our text this morning. We, we're in the middle of a, of a series um, entitled Christ and Him Crucified. Uh, that's derived from the text that uh, we were about to read. 1 Corinthians 1, 17, and we're going to read uh, chapter all the way through chapter 2, verse 2. And yeah, they're bringing around Bibles if you don't have one. Um, and I even think if you don't have a Bible, you could probably keep this one. Is that right, Jerry? Okay, we'd like you to keep it. If you don't have, have one at home, please take it home. Um, but here we go. You got the Gospels, then you have Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, verse 17. It says this For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the Gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God... The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Pray with me as we begin here. There's a lot out there, Lord that we might be tempted to know, that we might be tempted to rely on, to hope in, to trust in. And it's all empty. I'm praying, Lord, today, you would fulfill that verse, that today we would decide to know nothing but you, and your cross. God, I need your strength. I need your power. I need your mind. I need your words. And everyone here needs ears to hear, hearts to feel the wonders of what we're about to discuss. Would you meet with us, Jesus? We're your people. You're our God and Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, as I said, we're in the middle of a sermon series entitled Christ and Him Crucified, taken from 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. Each message in this series is going to be drawing from 1 Corinthians as its source, and we're going to be coming at this idea of Jesus Christ and Him crucified from different angles. If you remember last week, we, um, we looked at the centrality of the cross, That was our particular angle, and our critical question was, why? Why did Paul decide to know nothing among the Corinthians except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified? And the essence of our answer was, because the cross of Christ is man's only hope of salvation. In this fallen and flipped world... The message of the cross is both diagnosis of man's deepest problem and its cure. That was last week. This week, the title, the angle that we're going to be coming at um, is this, the conquest of the cross. And our critical question now is, how does this salvation work? So the cross is our only hope of salvation. How does it work? What did he accomplish there? What was his triumph, his victory, his conquest? And how does that apply to me? To answer this, we're going to focus in on 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. It's kind of the key verse we're going to be looking at for the morning. Um, And I think... We're going there because what we see is the spoils of Christ's conquests are most clearly delineated for us. So in other words, what he has accomplished, what he has achieved is right there in that verse. 
And we're going to follow the conquest of our Savior and His cross. Um, and as we do, I'm going to put my thoughts under two headings. They're there on your handout. you got the cross as the conquest of a new Adam. And then you have the cross as the conquest of a new humanity in that new Adam. In other words, we're going to look first at the conquest of the cross as it relates to Jesus himself. And then we're going to look at the conquest of the cross as it relates to us. Before we proceed, what I want to do, real quick, I realize I'm using a perhaps interesting word when I say conquest, and I I wanted to take just a brief moment to define my terms because I'm aware that I'm using the uh, vocabulary of war. Okay? And I'm also aware that typically being conquered or being the object of someone's conquest is not a good thing. And it's interesting, again, in some of my background work looking at 1 Corinthians, what you find is that the ancient city of Corinth was in fact the object of Rome's conquest back in 146 BC. Way before Paul ever showed up, Corinth was the object of Rome's conquest. They came in, they pillaged everything, they lowered every building, and every citizen in there was either killed or sold into slavery. There was a um, philosopher, pretty prominent in the day, I guess, who shows up in Corinth, and he's writing what what he observed there. This is what he says. He says, I saw one heap of stones covering the bones of those felled by the spear. In other words, nothing but death here. And the city lay in ruins until a century later, about 50 B.C., when Julius Caesar kind of resurrects it now as a Roman colony. And then another century later, about 50 A.D., Paul shows up. That's the Corinth he's in. It's a second one. It's after this conquest. But this is the kind of thing we typically think of when we hear the word conquest. We think of destruction, right? We think of someone coming in and heap of stones over bones, just death, and let's take everything of value in it for ourselves and get gone. And this is what you get when you consider the kings of this world. You get the self-aggrandizement, the self-focus. You get the leveraging of everything else for my own end. You get destruction. But Christ and His kingdom, His conquest, His reign, not like that of the kings of this world. He's on the other side of that ancient antithesis that we talked about last time. While the kings of this world are exalting themselves over and against God, He comes into the world, right? Humbles Himself beneath His Father, taking on the form of a servant, and He serves kingdom rebels like you and me. That's what He comes to do. Not to wall us out, but to bring us in. Not to tear us down, but to build us up. Not to put us to death, but to give us life. This is the kind of conquest that Jesus and His cross bring in. We do not become the spoils of His conquest, sold into slavery as if mere commodities. We are given the spoils of His conquest. Invited to participate in His triumph, His victory. And my prayer is that He would, therefore, conquer us afresh this morning. No better conquest in the world than the conquest of our Savior and His cross. So now as we begin to consider the cross as the conquest of a new Adam, let's look together at our key verse for the morning. Turn to, turn to uh, verse 30 there in chapter 1. And I want to make some initial observations that are going to kind of set us up uh, for discussion as we go. Okay? Let's read it together and uh, make, some, make some notes. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The first thing to observe is that Christ Jesus, right there, 
at the beginning of the verse, is the central figure. Make no mistake about it. He is the source of everything that follows. He is the wisdom. He is the righteousness. He is the sanctification and the redemption. It all is orbiting around Him in this verse. But the second thing, and this gets a little convoluted, so stick with me, that we have to ask is, is, is what is the relationship between the four items on this list? And I'm talking about wisdom, I'm talking about righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. How are we to understand the relationship here between each of these? Because there's something interesting you can't really see very well in the English, although the ESV tries to set it off. If you, if you have the ESV, I don't know what, actually what kind of Bibles we give out, but uh, with the comma there, after wisdom from God, they're trying to set apart something here. They're trying to show us what you can see more clearly in the Greek. If I were to translate it from that for you so you could, you could see it most clearly, this is, what it, this is what it would read. Christ Jesus became to us or for us wisdom from God which consists in. So that wisdom from God is composed of or is essentially made up of or consists in this righteousness Sanctification and redemption. I'm sure I've lost you, but hold on. Putting this verse back into context then helps us to see things a little bit clearer. Because we remember Paul's discussion. He's talking about now, he's been concerned this whole time with what? Wisdom and power. Wisdom and power. That's been his discussion all throughout 1 Corinthians 1. He's talking about the wisdom of the world, verse 20, that fails to deliver on what it promises. Okay? There's this wisdom that's kind of all form and eloquence and has no substance and power. It's all talk. And then he's comparing the wisdom of the world with, verse 21, the wisdom of God as it is found in the cross that while it appears foolish truly is the power of God to save. Okay? Perhaps we could make it even more clear when we look at, and I'll just read it for you, but you can make note if you want. I think it's in your handout. When we read what Paul says later to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 18 to 20, he says this, Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. So you see, the Corinthians love talk. They love this kind of wisdom of of the, the world, this wisdom of word. But it has no power in it. It's void. It's empty. It's kind of like, as I was thinking of, how can I illustrate this? It's kind of like a, a fan, you know, like a sports team sitting there in the bleachers a few rows back, just running his mouth at all these athletes a hundred times better than him. He has no intention of getting on the court and dunking or bringing anything home because he knows he can't do it. And yet, he's still talking. He loves to just lay it out there. Or it's like that little dog. Have you ever been on a walk and you see the little dogs that come and they see the big dog rolling this way and they're just yip, 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 like they have, actually, if you let me off this chain, I'm going to take that thing down. And you're going, are you serious? (laughs) If I let you off the chain, you're running that way and you know it, little man. The Corinthians, kind of like that. The concern for the wisdom of the world, kind of like that. All talk, no walk. And this is contrasted with with the wisdom of the kingdom of God, which consists in power. The kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but power. Okay? So this is what we get then in verse 30. And what it really is, is just an expansion upon what Paul already said up in verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So the cross is both the wisdom and power of God to save. And this righteousness, sanctification, and redemption kind of are what composes this power of His wisdom. Does this make sense? Wisdom and power 
You got wisdom, consists in this kind of power. Now finally, regarding our verse there in verse in, in uh, verse 30, I want to ask, how should we define these three things that compose his wisdom, this power aspect of the cross, the righteousness, the sanctification and redemption? How should we define them? How are we supposed to understand them? I want to put it very, very, very simply, because we don't have time to go into much detail, but righteousness can be understood as being in right standing before God. Okay? Sanctification is being set apart for intimate relationship with God. Okay? And then redemption would be set free for undivided worship of God. So you've right standing before God, you have set apart for relationship with Him, and set free to worship Him and him alone. That would be my quick definition of these things. But now, having laid some of the groundwork in our text, I want to move now towards what um, what I said we'd focus on here, which is uh, Christ and his cross as the conquest of a new Adam. If we return to the first observation I made, that Jesus Christ is the central figure, he is the source of this wisdom and this power, what we need to ask now is how? How did he become such a thing? How did he become the source of this? And what we start to see is that the work of Christ in the scriptures is clearly set against the work of Adam. Okay? the one who began it all and humanity came from him, the work of Christ is set against it. And he's shown to be a new Adam. Now, Paul gets real explicit with this. In 1 Corinthians 15, he compares the work of the first Adam with the work of Jesus, who he calls actually the last Adam. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 45. He calls Adam the first man and he calls Jesus the second man. So Paul is clearly seeing what Jesus is going to do, what Jesus did in relationship to what happened with Adam. And these two Adams comprehend for Paul the entirety of human history. Here's what we got to understand. Here's what we got to understand. Our relationship to either the first Adam or the second Adam, Jesus, determines everything. It determines which side of that antithesis we're on, and it determines our final destiny. So why Paul tries to draw this, this contrast so clearly. If we are in the first Adam, we are exalting ourselves over and against God, just like he did. And we are headed towards condemnation, exile, and death, just like he did. But if we are in the second Adam, namely Christ, then we are humbling ourselves under God and walking with Him. And we are headed not towards condemnation, but glory, just like Christ. So this is, this is huge in terms of yours and my life. And I know it might be a, seem a little bit obscure, but the question is, is, is very important. Which Adam are we following behind. Now, at its most basic level, the second Adam, Jesus Christ's mission, was to regain and bring to completion all that the first Adam had lost. Okay? If we think about what the first Adam had and what he lost, it would look like this, to use the categories of our verse there in um, verse 30. The first Adam did not base his wisdom on the fear of the Lord. You remember Proverbs? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He did not base his wisdom there. Instead, he exalted himself over God in light of Satan's question to him. Do you remember what Satan said? Did God really say? That was not an innocent question. That was an invitation to question him and put yourself over your Creator. So Adam decides, you know what? 
forget this fear of God thing and the wisdom that comes from Him. I'm going to get the wisdom that comes from the world, myself, and I will exalt myself over. So he loses, he forfeits this wisdom, if you will. And what happens after that? The original righteousness that he had, being right in standing before God, it turns into what? Sin and condemnation. And the sanctification that he enjoyed, being set apart for the worship and service of God, to, to, to tend to the garden and to expand God's, um, God's kingdom. He lost it. That sanctification becomes exile and rejection. And he's banished out of God's presence to the far reaches of the creation. And if you think about the original freedom that he had to worship God with an undivided heart, what happens? Well, when he gives in to the enemy, that freedom becomes bondage to Satan, sin, and death. So this counterfeit wisdom held out for, held out to Adam by the serpent actually doesn't deliver at all. It's that empty kind of wisdom that rather than giving what it promises, gives the exact opposite. So now, cue the second Adam. His mission was to regain and to bring to completion all that the first Adam lost. And in order to do this, he has to stand at every point where the first Adam fell. Now this is where it gets really interesting. I wonder if you ever considered why Jesus' public ministry began where it did. Do you remember after his baptism, and the anointing with the Spirit, and it says this is kind of when he first steps onto the scene. You think, why, why in Matthew 4 verse 1 do we read that he is immediately led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by who? The devil. Reminiscent of who? Adam. And following Matthew's account, the temptations begin with food, interestingly enough, and culminate in this promise to give him the kingdoms of the world, to make him like a god, but not on God's timing, but now. You see? The, the temptations, everything is, is, is linking us back to the first Adam and his fall. At every point, Satan's goal is to get the second Adam to go as the first Adam did. To question God's wisdom and His power. That's why nearly every temptation begins with, if you're the Son of God, why are you hungry? Why aren't you reigning? Why aren't the angels lifting you up? If you're really the Son of God, why are you in this trial? Question His wisdom. Question His love. Question His power. Take the shortcut to glory and get it now. But at every point, Christ's response is, what? It is written. Every time Satan comes with that underlying question, did God really say? Jesus answers with the resounding, yes, he did. And he stands where the first Adam fell. And what was the beginning of the end in the first Adam is now a new beginning in the second Adam. But we know that this wasn't the end of the combat between Christ and the devil. Luke's gospel tells us that Satan departed from him until an opportune time. And we know from the Gospels that this is the time of his crucifixion. Think about this. Do you remember um, when Jesus, it says in, in Matthew's Gospel, I think, uh, chapter 16, he, it says that this is when he first starts to tell his disciples that his, he's going to suffer and he's going to die. 
He starts to unveil the fullness of his mission to redeem, to save. And what happens? Peter rebukes him, right? And says, far be it from you. That's not going to happen to my king. What does Jesus say? Get behind me who? Satan. I recognize that voice. I recognize the voice behind your voice, Peter. Sounds like the devil. This is his last chance. Avoid the shame. Take the shortcut to glory. The cross isn't for you. But again, Jesus is by the book. That question, did God really say? Matthew 26, 24, this is what he says. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Yes, he said it. Therefore, I humble myself beneath the Father and I go through it. And I trust his wisdom. I trust his power to save. So he would go to the cross. He would take on, we talked a little bit about this last week, but he would take on the anti-wisdom and the anti-righteousness and the anti-sanctification and the anti-redemption that the first Adam brought in. He would take on all the, the, the contrary that was initiated by the first Adam on that cross. And we know that in order to do this, this is where the only wise one was made to be our foolishness. This is where the only righteous one was made to be our sin. This is where the only sanctified one, the one truly set apart from before the ages began for the purposes of God, is on that cross dying outside the gate, Hebrews tells us. Like one cursed and unholy and impure takes on our exile and rejection. And we know that the only truly free man to walk this earth gave himself to the chains, the lashings, and the nails. He let Satan's sin and death have their full and furious way with him. For us, right? But three days later, just after dawn, which you have to love that little detail, new day coming up, the second Adam, having paid for all the failures of the first, regained and advanced in himself all that was lost. I love what Peter says in his Pentecost sermon. He says, it was not possible for death to hold him down. He likens the, 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 the death, the crucifixion that Jesus had to the pangs of birth. It says he was released from the pangs, it says, which clearly is relating us to the birth pangs, which invites us to see the cross not as death ultimately, but as the process whereby new life erupts. And Christ comes forth from the grave and the resurrection is God's vindication to the world that the one we called foolish is truly the wisdom of God. The one we called condemned truly the righteousness of God. The one we said was rejected and under God's curse truly is the one set apart as the firstborn of a new creation. The one we said, nail him. Drive it in. Truly walks out as the first one to enjoy the full freedom of the children of God. Satan, sin, and death taken on and overthrown. That is what Jesus did on the cross. He stood where the first Adam fell. This is his Conquest, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. First for him, as a man, 
as the God-man. But now we get to this conquest as it relates to us. This is only the beginning of his conquest. When he steps forward from the grave, like I said, he steps forward as the firstborn, as the first fruits. Meaning there's a lot to follow. And the ones who follow are you and me. And anyone who would trust in him. He achieved this righteousness, sanctification, and redemption for himself, and he desires to apply it to us. The spoils of his triumph he wants to give to us. He is the source, and we are to be the recipients. He is the king, and we are his subjects. As the first Adam stood at the head of a fallen humanity, so Christ, the new Adam, is to stand at the head of a new humanity. Have you ever wondered why we talk about being born again? This would be why. We made a new humanity in line with the second Adam, no longer following the first. Now, as we move to consider then the cross as the conquest of a new humanity, what immediately becomes evident is that before Christ can share with us the spoils of his conquest, he must first conquer us. We talked about this a little bit last time in the war path he was on to destroy our pride, though not to leave us as a heap of stones covering bones, but to resurrect us and to give us life, right? So he must conquer us first because we do not by nature want what he has to give. And that's the crazy thing about the gospel, you guys. You ever want, you go and you share with people a message about grace, about just receive what he has done. And people, just get it out of my mouth. It tastes foul. I don't like that message. Why? Pride. I want to do it with my wisdom, my power, not someone else's. Don't call me weak. We have to come to the end of ourselves before we're able and willing to come into Christ. We all by nature follow behind the first Adam. And we maintain that principle of pride at its root. Now here's the interesting thing. All of humanity, as those made in the image of God, we know that we kind of need this what, what God alone can provide. So actually, if you look, what we all are after, whether we're in Christ or not, is this idea of righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Let me explain to you what I mean. Rightly understood, all of those things, as I defined earlier, were in relation to God. Righteousness is right standing before Him. Sanctification is set apart for relationship with Him. All of it has relationship with God. But what happens when the world gets a hold of it, when our fallen nature gets a hold of it, is we redefine it, we twist it so it's man-centered, so that justification becomes, this is what people want, we want to feel right. We want to feel good about ourselves. We want to feel justified. Sanctification and and man's pursuit of it becomes, I want to be set apart. I want to be special. I want to be above the rest. I want to be valuable, valued by others, worthy of praise. Redemption becomes, I want to be free from all that's troubling me, all this depression and sorrow and the brokenness of my family and of the world around me. So they're after the same things. They just don't go about it with reference to God. They cannot, they will not. And so, just like the first Adam, they receive a counterfeit wisdom. Satan holds out plenty of options. You take this or that, this will get me there. This will get me there. And it never delivers. Let me give you an example. I thought this was pretty powerful. I was um, reading an article from the New York Times the other day on anorexia. And I saw grafting right into the content of, of these sermons. And forgive me if, um, if this is a sensitive subject. I'm not at all trying to um, be insensitive here. 
This is one example of many. So I realize that some people even here perhaps struggle with these things. But I'm reading this article and I'm reading about these girls and what they're going through and I'm seeing that they desire to be justified. They desire to feel like they are right, like they are good. They desire to feel set apart, to be, you know, uh, more beautiful than the next, more noticeable, more worthy of praise. They desire to be free from feeling the, 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 the troubles or the ailments that they've felt most of their life. And they think, they buy into the counterfeit wisdom that beauty, supermodel, skinny beauty, will get them there. It will get them justified, sanctified, and free. Buy into it. Listen to this. This is... One girl, um, as she's, she's interviewed and, and talking about this, you can't ever really say that Anna, and they call themselves Annas, um, people that are struggling with anorexia, uh, some of the girls, I guess, call themselves by the name Anna. You can't ever really say that Anna is in a form of self-hatred, even though I try to say that. If I was truthfully happy with myself, then I would allow myself to eat, but I don't. And it's kind of like a strive for perfection and for making myself better. You can't say that every Anna loves herself and that she doesn't think anything is wrong with her at all or else she wouldn't be Anna in the first place. So she knows something is wrong, that this place has fallen, that she is fallen. She knows she needs righteousness, sanctification, and to be set free, to be better, to be able to be happy. But she goes about trying to attain these things without God, without His provision in Christ, who really does wash us with the water of His Word and make us beautiful so that we become the apple of His eye and gives us all the things she wants. But they don't go that route. Go the route of the counterfeit wisdom of the devil and he promises something that delivers the exact opposite. One clinician describes the anorexic as falling into an abyss. They can't get out of. It's not about, okay, I want to lose the 10 pounds and go on with my life. It's, this has consumed my entire existence. What promised freedom and liberation enslaves and brings you further and further down. And I hope, even though I went into detail on this one, we can all see we're, prone to, we're all prone to do this. This is the way of the first Adam. Did God really say, I don't think so. I think I could find it quicker this way. This way, with a new job, I just might be set apart and, and not have to worry anymore about financial stress and we'd feel free or with the right sexual partner. I might actually enjoy pleasure and feel valued and everything will be right in my world. Counterfeit wisdom held out so many different shapes, so many different shades. We're all prone to jump on it. I don't know what it is for you. But it's there. But to all of these things, God says, no. The cross of Christ alone is my wisdom. And it provides the righteousness, the sanctification, the redemption that you're looking for. The new humanity begins where the old humanity ends. To quote from Paul here, check this out in 1 Corinthians 3.18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Wise. In other words, before you're going to see Christ as glorious, as wise, as powerful, before you're going to see it, you have to become a fool. 
You have to first see that all the wisdom of the world and all of my own wisdom is utter foolishness. All of my power and all of my attempts to self-save, weakness, just lead to deeper bondage. You have to get there, become a fool, and then you're on the way to becoming wise. And seeing in the cross that once appeared foolish, the wisdom and the power of God to save me. You remember Nebuchadnezzar from last week? You remember how I said he's walking on the, 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 the roof of his palace saying, look at Babylon that I have made and isn't this wonderful? I am glorious. And God in that moment says, the kingdom is taken from you, you will be like a beast of the field. When, when, when Nebuchadnezzar thought he was at his peak of glory, he truly was like an animal. And God showed him that reality. In his grace, he conquered his pride and brought him lower till it says that he ate the grass like an ox and the dew fell on his head. Literally made an animal, it sounds. Shown what's really going on in his heart. But I didn't read you this. This is where God goes after He shows us we are fools and the path to wisdom steps out from there. Daniel 4, 34 says this, At the end of the days, at the end of all this being an animal and God taking my kingdom from me, Nebuchadnezzar says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever for His dominion, not mine, His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And His kingdom, not mine, endures from generation to generation. And then what follows is just one of the most astounding declarations of the sovereignty of our King. And God it says after this, restored his kingdom to him and made him even greater than he was before. And this is our testimony, is it not? This whole moving down to then be brought up in Christ. I mean, this is it. Every story, almost every story I've ever heard involves something like just a riff on the prodigal son. Just, I was going my own way. I said, you know, thank you God, or thank you Father, but I want the inheritance now. Shortcut to easy life. Now. I want it now. So I'm going to go, and I'm going to do it, and I was living my way, and I was living it up, and it was wonderful, and then I hit the pods of pigs. And I think even in Luke 15, you have to check me on this, it says something like, and then my mind returned to me. Or his eyes were open. Something along the same lines as my reason returned. And I realized, I am going with the animals. And so I headed home. Because I saw the wisdom of my father. I saw his ability to provide. And what happens there? Instead of receiving wrath, instead of, re- you got to pay me back, boy. Get in the shed. Instead of that, what does he get? He gets the the best robe put around his shoulder. He gets the ring around his finger. He gets, what else is there? Shoes, his father's shoes put on his feet. And he gets the fattened calf, not the pods of pigs, the fattened calf as a feast and a celebration. My son was dead, but now he's alive. And you got to ask, what are we doing at this table? How did we get here? How do we get to partake of the Lord's table? Which is just a picture of the wedding banquet to follow. How do we get there? The wisdom and the power of our Savior in His cross. He took, He paid the penalty for my sin so I could be counted righteous. He suffered the exile and rejection so I could be brought in. He's the one that gave Himself over to the bondage of death so that I could be set free. 
you could be set free. He invites rebels back to himself and he makes them greater than they were before. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 22. I'll leave you with this. Verse 30, chapter 1. Notice, because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Union with Christ is foregrounded as the essential component. If you want the benefits, if you want the spoils of his conquest, you've got to come to Christ. It's found in him, whether you're not yet a believer, and you're now finding yourself at the pods of pigs going, what am I doing with my life? That is mercy. Run back to your Creator. He welcomes you in Christ. Receive Him by faith and experience union with Him and His triumph. And if you are a believer, believe me, we are still fighting the flesh which is patterned after the first Adam. You are going to be tempted. Did God really say? This verse says, foreground, emphasize, don't let go of union with Him. In other words, Trust Him. Fellowship with Him. Talk to Him. This isn't some weird theological thing. It's more like marriage. You know how it says they become one flesh? It's like that. It's intimate relationship. Become one with Christ. Don't let Him go. Just like in marriage, you can you can kind of drift from one another over time because you're not talking and you're not trusting and things creep in. Don't let that happen. Draw near to Him today and fellowship with Him. And stay close and experience His wisdom and His power. He's happy to bring it. Let me pray. Thank You, Lord, for all that You have done. Jesus, we know we do not belong at this table. We are here because of you. Because we are in you. Jesus, we are the dogs that just want the scraps from your table. We do not claim a righteousness for ourselves or to be set apart from others or to be able to self-save and self-redeem. We need you. You're the only one, Lord. And so I pray, would you, Show everyone in this room you're not the kind of king that leaves them in a heap of stones over bones. You're the kind of king that brings life by your spirit to dry bones. Do it in this room here, we pray. And we lift up our voices to you now in praise.